Hello. My name is Dr. Mercurio Arborea, and I am the founder of the Arborea Institute. Through our unique blend of benign pharmacology, sensory therapy, and energy sculpting, we can guide you to a new, better, happier you. You're about to embark on a great journey. Let the new age of enlightenment begin. What is at stake is more than one small country. It is a big idea. A new world order. It's no longer a theory. What I'm about to say is fact. The secret organizations of the world power elite are no longer secret. They have planned and are now leading us into a one-world communist government. Welcome useless eaters to the Odd Man Out podcast, where we talk about hidden history, deep political policy, occult deconstruction, economics, religion, and philosophy. I'm your rabbit hole aficionado, the Odd Man. Welcome. The affirmative task we have now is, uh, is to actually... Um, uh, create uh, uh, a new world order. Public policy could itself become the captain of a scientific, technological elite. And when that first cocaine was smuggled in on a ship, it may as well have been a deadly bacteria so much as it hurt the body, the soul of our country. But take my word for it, this scourge will stop. Welcome freaks and geeks, oddities, and any of you new listeners checking out the show for the first time. I really, really appreciate you taking your precious time to hang out with me. This is part of your life you're never going to get back. So, it's huge. It's really huge. You should pat yourself on the back. Sorry. Thank you. It really does mean a lot. I'm honored, and this week is going to be a continuation of of the series, Whose War Is It Anyway?, where we look at the modern history of Ukraine and Russia. We actually go all the way back to the 50s and even 40s, I believe, when the U.S. first started arming and funding Nazis in Ukraine. So I suggest if you haven't listened to the other episodes, go back and listen to them in sequence. You don't have to, but I think it would be better to understand everything. And then hit this one up after number four. Now, this week, we're going to be focusing in on the money that has come into Ukraine from the West and is coming into Ukraine from the West and the NATO countries. Right now, there is money flowing in to that country. And there's been billions flow into that country before. Not even from just the U.S. and NATO countries, but from the Soros foundations, and from Russia when they had different deals with Russia. Keep in mind that Ukraine and Russia, while this war is going on, still have a gas deal that is ongoing. So we have to think about this. And we also need to think about, as I mentioned in the other episodes, the leaks in the Pandora Papers, which showed that 38 Ukrainians had overseas bank accounts, different bank accounts from different countries. So I have to wonder 
And, and by the way, Ukraine topped the list of countries with these hidden bank accounts. And, of course, the greatest living human being in the world, the living legend himself, Vladimir Zelensky, was implicated in the Pandora Papers. And it showed that not only did he have overseas accounts, but he owned his own recording studio, complete video, audio, and he also was in bed with Igor Kolomoski, who was a very, very bad man. And if you want to understand that, listen to the last episode. But I'm just asking the question, where has all this money went, these billions that have been poured into this country over the years? Obviously, it doesn't seem to have done much good because there's still rampant corruption, no matter who's the president there or the prime minister, and the place is still a mess. And that's partly, or maybe mostly, the West's fault for not allowing Russia to have Ukraine. Now, I'm not saying they should have full reign over Ukraine, but I'm saying that this Western sphere of influence that virtually goes all over the rest of the globe, cannot seem to permit Russia from having even good relations and good trading relationships with these Baltic states. They cannot have Russia being successful even on a much smaller scale than the global West. And so I think that we need to look into that and see kind of what's going on there And keep in mind, I've been pretty open about not trusting Vladimir Putin either. I don't think he's this Superman or this, you know, this uh, great warrior of personal freedom. I just don't believe that. I don't believe that someone connected and appointed basically by Boris Yeltsin could possibly be a good guy. You know, maybe he's good to a point but I just don't believe that he's this savior like a lot of people think. Now, that may make you mad, but I'm just being honest with you. I don't think we can trust these politicians in our own countries, let alone these foreign politicians that we really don't know all that much about. Most people don't know that much about Putin, and they're not going to do a deep dive on him. But that being said, it's obvious that the West has been regime-changing overthrowing governments in all these countries for a very long time, and it's not to democratize it. It's not democracy for the average citizens. It's to get their corporati, crony capitalist, whatever you want to call it, partners in there, the industries and the bankers. It's about global debt, creating debt through the IMF and the World Bank. These countries can't pay it back. And so they're owned by the global Western elite. So that's what I'm talking about. Okay, so without any further ado, let's listen to this clip from last year. I want to say this was last September, either September or November, of Vladimir Zelensky visiting the White House and having a meeting with the Secretary of Defense, Mr. CFR himself, Lloyd T. Austin, where... Mr. Austin is promising Vladimir a whole lot of our tax dollars in exchange for his obedience, basically. So let's listen to this quick clip and then we'll go from there. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for joining us. 
President Lewinsky and Minister Tehran, it's a pleasure to welcome you to the Pentagon. We're grateful for Ukraine's assistance with evacuation operations there, and I'm glad that we, ha we have this opportunity to reaffirm our wider strategic partnership. And we will continue to stand with you in the face of this Russian aggression. Now, this department is committed to strengthening our strategic defense partnership. The U.S.-Ukraine strategic defense framework that Minister Tehran and I will sign today enhances our cooperation and advances our shared priorities, such as ensuring that our bilateral security cooperation continues to help Ukraine counter Russian aggression, and implementing defense and defense industry reforms in support of Ukraine's NATO membership aspirations, and deepening our cooperation in such areas as Black Sea security, cyber defense, and intel sharing. The minister and I will also sign a research, development, test, and evaluation agreement, providing a framework to, to pursue bilateral armaments and military technical cooperation through cooperative projects. Since 2014, the United States has committed more than $2.5 billion to support Ukraine's forces so that they can preserve their country's territorial integrity, secure its borders, and improve its interoperability with NATO. As you know, sir, President Biden has approved a new $60 million security assistance package, including Javelin anti-armor systems and more to enable Ukraine to better defend itself against Russian aggression. The United States and our allies are committed to supporting Ukraine's right to decide its own future foreign policy, free from outside interference. America is glad to help as long as you do what we say. And if you do not, we will not help you. We will not protect you. And you will not get loans from the IMF. That's what this all translates into. Obedience. And I love how they're still holding the NATO membership over Ukraine's head, even though they promised them membership back in 2008, as we learned under the Bucharest Declaration. But also, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that Zelensky had turned down NATO membership. Now, maybe that was after this meeting. But it seems like they've been holding that over their head for quite a while, or at least pretending as if they want them to be a member of NATO. Though, if you listen to Brzezinski in the Grand Chessboard, as I talked about on the last show, or maybe the one before that, said that they had planned basically to put Ukraine in and all the Baltic states. So it is on the table, has been on the table for a long time, and maybe they're just dangling it like a carrot in hopes that Ukraine will stay obedient, and it seems like they have. So what the Secretary of Defense actually should have said is the U.S. supports Ukraine's right to decide its own foreign policy as long as it lines up perfectly with the West's idea of what their foreign policy should be. Now, after I watched this, I thought, you know what, I'm going to look into more funding. Of course, we'll never be able to know the total amounts from all the different entities, but the usaid.gov website and usaid, USAID, is another one of these organizations that's always around when there's a regime change. 
But it says here in 2019, this is 2019, that 250 million in military aid for Ukraine was released, and there is another 146 million that needs to be released. And that was in 2019. It also said on that website that since 1992, you said, has contributed more than $3 billion in assistance to Ukraine. And I saw on Yahoo News, it said the big picture. When it comes to military support in particular, the U.S. committed to more than $600 million just last year and more than $2.7 billion since 2014. And in February 28, 2022, French President Emmanuel Macron has moved to extend 320, no, excuse me, 337 million of aid and military equipment to Ukraine, according to the French Daily Le Monde. In early February, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz did the math to counter criticism from Kiev. He said that nearly 2.75 billion in direct aid had flowed from Germany to Ukraine since the country had spoken out in favor of democratic elections, a pro-European course, and against the Kremlin-friendly government that was toppled in 2014. In addition, there had been another $4.3 billion from the EU budget, whose biggest net contributor is Germany. The UK government has pledged another £80 million in aid after Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine. New funding brings a total of UK support during the current Ukraine crisis to 220 million pounds, which includes 120 million pounds of humanitarian aid. Now, we hear about this humanitarian aid, and we've heard stories of how they use humanitarian aid as leverage, and how sometimes thousands and thousands of pounds of humanitarian aid in the form of food has been found to just be rotting away somewhere. We've heard various stories about that, especially since I've been looking into this whole Ukraine-Russia situation, which is, it, it always leads to other situations in other countries because that's the way foreign policy does. You start to learn how these different organizations, these different departments, and these different governments work and how the players play the game, play the chessboard, behind the scenes, and you see that there are some really horrible things that happen, have happened, and are probably happening at this very moment. I also saw when I was researching this funding that just yesterday, April 12th, the World Bank announced it was going to send $1.5 billion to Ukraine as food and energy prices spike. Now, Australia is providing $65 million in humanitarian funding to help meet the urgent needs of the Ukrainian people. At the start of the conflict, Australia provided $35 million to trusted humanitarian partners, enabling them to rapidly respond to immediate priorities. An additional $30 million in humanitarian assistance will help the most vulnerable, including children, elderly, disabled, and women. Australia will also support Ukraine's energy security by donating at least 70,000 tons of thermal coal. Says here, Canada is sending lethal military weaponry to Ukraine and loaning Kiev a half a billion Canadian dollars. That's 394 million. Germany. Berlin has broken a long-standing taboo 
of not exporting arms to conflict zones and vowing to send Ukraine 1,000 anti-tank weapons, 500 Stinger surface-to-air missiles, and nine howitzers. It is also donating 14 armored vehicles and 10,000 tons of fuel. Sweden, Stockholm is also breaking its historic neutral stance to send 5,000 anti-tank rockets to Ukraine, as well as field rations and body armor. It's the first time that Sweden has sent weapons to a country in armed conflict since the Soviet Union invaded neighboring Finland in 1939. France, which we read about earlier, has already sent help in dispatching more military equipment and fuel as well. Paris says it has acted on earlier Ukrainian requests for defensive anti-aircraft and digital weapons. Belgium says it will help supply Ukraine with 3,000 more automatic rifles and 200 anti-tank weapons, as well as 3,800 tons of fuel. The EU pledges $500 million in military aid to Ukraine. In the Netherlands, the Dutch defense minister says it is sending 200 Stinger missiles as soon as possible after a shipment Saturday of sniper rifles and helmets. It adds to the 20 million euros, 22 million in American money, of humanitarian aid it has already promised. The Czech Republic said Saturday it is sending 4,000 mortars in the next few hours, as well as an arsenal of 30,000 pistols, 7,000 assault rifles, 3,000 machine guns, as well as scores of sniper rifles and a million bullets. The Czechs had already promised Kiev 4,000 mortars worth 1.5 million euros, which have yet to be delivered. Italy. Rome has sent 110 million euros, or $123 million, in immediate aid to the Ukrainian government as a concrete sign of our support, the foreign minister Luigi Diamayo said. And Portugal is giving Ukraine night vision goggles, bulletproof vests, helmets, grenades, ammunition, and automatic G3 rifles. Greece, which has a large community in Ukraine, 10 of whom have been killed with many more in the firing line, is sending defense equipment as well as humanitarian aid. Romania, Bucharest, which shares the border with Ukraine, is offering to treat the wounded in its 11 military hospitals, as well as sending fuel, bulletproof vests, helmets, and other military equipment worth 3 million euros. Spain, Madrid has promised to send 20 tons of aid to Ukraine, mostly medical and defensive equipment such as bulletproof vests. Israel says it's sending 100 tons of humanitarian aid such as medical equipment, water purifiers, tents, and sleeping bags. I saw something pretty interesting here. 2018, it's July 2018. This is from Haaretz, which is an Israeli news site. It says a group of more than 40 human rights activists have filed a petition with the High Court of Justice demanding the cessation of Israeli arms exports to Ukraine. They argue that these weapons serve forces that openly espouse a neo-Nazi ideology and cite evidence that the right-wing Azov militia, whose members are part of Ukraine's armed forces and are supported by the country's Ministry of Internal Affairs, is using these weapons. An earlier appeal to the defense ministry was met with no response. The ministry's considerations in granting export licenses for armaments are not disclosed to the public, but it appears that the appearance of Israeli weapons in the hands of the avowed neo-Nazis 
should be a consideration used in opposing the granting of such a license. Nevertheless, this is not the first time in which the defense establishment is arming forces that embrace a national socialist ideology. In the past, Israel has armed anti-Semitic regimes, such as the General's regime in Argentina, which murdered thousands of Jews in camps while its soldiers stood in watchtowers, guarding the abducted prisoners with their Uzi submachine guns. According to a Freedom of Information petition to Israel's defense ministry from last January, Israel also armed Bolivia's military regimes, knowing that Nazi war criminal Klaus Barbie, I believe he was the butcher, right, was part of the regime. Legal documents used to convict the head of the junta also showed that Barbie's death squads used Israel Uzis. In the case of Ukraine's forces using Israeli weapons, are openly stating their support for racist and anti-Semitic ideas in various publications. The Azov militia was established in Ukraine following the Russian invasion of the Crimean Peninsula in 2014. The militia's emblems are well-known national socialist ones. Its members use the Nazi salute and carry swastikas and SS insignias. Moreover, some of them openly admit they have neo-Nazi sentiments and that they are Holocaust deniers. One militia member said in an interview that he was fighting Russia since Putin was a Jew. An Azov sergeant said that he was a national socialist, although he was not in favor of genocide. As long as minorities in Ukraine did not demand special rights, he would have no problem with them. The militia's founder, Andrei Beletsky, who is now a member of Ukraine's parliament, formerly headed a neo-Nazi group called Patriot of Ukraine, now defunct. Its members comprise the founding core of Azov. Our nation's historic mission at this critical juncture is to lead the final march of the white race towards its survival, Baleski has said. This is a march against subhumans who are led by the Semite race. According to reports by human rights groups, militia members are suspected of war crimes, torture, and sexual violence. And I could go on and on, but this will be in the show notes. I can't remember if I reported it in one of the other episodes I think it was in 2020 or 2021 that Ukraine and Israel struck a free trade deal with one another. So that may be another reason why Israel has been kind of standoffish and not wanting to take a side because they're dealing also with Russia. They have different deals with Russia on different things as well. They even have a street named after Putin and they had an opening for the street, which I thought was pretty interesting. And there used to be a bar there in Israel named after Putin, but it's since changed its name to Zelensky, right? And actually, there was also a youth center there in Israel that Putin had opened up with different donors coming to help pay for it. So I thought that was pretty wild. A few facts there that you don't hear very often, but it is true. And if you want to look it up, look it up. I suggest you do. Looking back in March 2022, not long ago, we have an article here on Yahoo News. Exclusive secret CIA training program in Ukraine helped Kiev prepare for Russian invasion. It says Ukrainian snipers had a real problem. Russian forces in eastern Ukraine were trying to blind them. As Ukrainians were looking through their scopes in order to find their targets, 
the Russians had begun pinpointing their location using the glare of the glass and were shooting high-energy lasers into them, damaging the snipers' eyesights. It says, as Russian troops soon entered the fray, so quietly did the CIA, as the battle lines hardened in Donbass, a small, select group of veteran CIA paramilitaries made their first secret trips to the front lines to meet with Ukrainian counterparts there, according to former U.S. officials. So obviously, we already technically have boots on the ground, or have had. CIA paramilitaries soon concluded that, in Russia and its proxies, the agency was facing an adversary whose capabilities far outmatched the Islamist groups that the CIA had faced in the battle post-9-11. We learned a lot real quick, says a former military intelligence official, including about the Russians' laser-blinding techniques. That shit wouldn't have happened with the Taliban. Here, February 22, documents reveal U.S. spent $22 million promoting anti-Russia narrative in Ukraine and abroad. This is Alan McLeod. The National Endowment for Democracy can claim it is in the business of democracy promotion. In reality, it does anything but that, unless democracy is entirely synonymous with elite U.S. interests. Kiev, Ukraine. Amid soaring tensions with Russia, the United States is spending a fortune on foreign interference campaigns in Ukraine. Washington's regime change arm, the National Endowment for Democracy, or NED, has spent $22.4 million on operations inside the country since 2014, when democratically elected, allegedly, President Viktor Yanukovych was overthrown and replaced by a successor government handpicked by the U.S., Those operations included propping up and training pro-Western political parties, funding pliant media organizations, and subsidizing massive privatization drives that benefit foreign multinational corporations, all in an effort to secure U.S. control over the country that NED's president, Carl Gershom, called the biggest prize in Europe. Dim washing the CIA, he says, the National Endowment for Democracy was set up in 1983 by Reagan. Now, we're going to get into the National Endowment for Democracy in a future episode, but I'll skip ahead here a little bit. Since its inception, NED has been a driving force behind many of the most prominent uprisings and coups around the world. The organization currently has 40 active projects in Belarus alone, all with the goal of removing President Alexander Lukashenko from office. Last year, the country was engulfed by nationwide protests that made worldwide headlines. NED Senior Europe Program Officer Nina Ogianova boasted that her agency was involved in the uprising. We don't think that this movement that is so impressive and so inspiring came out of nowhere, that it just happened overnight, she said, noting that NED had made a modest but significant contribution to the protests. Now again, Ned and you said seem to work hand in hand with Soros's different organizations in these countries to create these coups, like the International Renaissance Foundation there in Ukraine, but also in Kazakhstan and other places. The 2021 protest movement in Cuba was also led by Ned Finance operatives, with the organization's own documents showing how it had for years been infiltrating the Cuban art and music scene in an attempt to turn popular culture against the communist government. Ultimately, the movement failed, 
However, Ned continues to prop up anti-government Cuban artists, media outlets, politicians, and public figures. Ned was also funneling money to the leaders of the 2019 Hong Kong protests in an attempt to prolong the movement. Now, before you say, shouldn't we be against these communist governments? Not necessarily. If these are sovereign nations, what's it to us? What's it to the West? What's it to the United States? How does it benefit us as citizens for our government to spend who knows how much money trying to overthrow these governments or get people in place in these governments that they can control? That's for money. That's for these big corporations and banks. It has nothing to do with our freedom, protecting our Bill of Rights or the Constitution. You know, It has nothing to do with us. It's all about them and their cronies. And so and they're not trying to overthrow these governments and create this republic, this constitutional republic like we have. They're trying to create democracy. And that's, you know, their kind of democracy, which we've talked about before, is basically just a way of saying we want our people in control. We want to get our industries in here. We want to let the IMF loan money to these countries that they'll never repay so we can just totally take control of them, seize their lands, take their minerals, you know, do those kinds of things, privatize everything with our cronies. So it has nothing really to do with liberal versus conservative or socialist versus capitalist. I mean, there's no free market involved in it, even though the left and probably even this author would say it's the free market's problem. I would say a free market is anyone can compete, anyone can come in and try and compete anyway. But this is a small group of elites who are all protecting one another and ensuring that their businesses and their banks succeed and their politicians succeed. And that's what that's all about. It's a protectionist racket. And a lot of people, they get everything right but that one part. I want to finish up just a little bit of this going into Ned here. Ned is almost entirely funded by Congress and is staffed largely by ex-national security state leaders. Its current president, Damon Wilson, former special assistant to President George W. Bush, and senior director for European affairs at the National Security Council. Other top officials, including its board of directors, which includes CIA Director William J. Burns, current Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs, and 2014 Ukrainian Madan revolutionary mastermind, Victoria Newland, as well as a veteran national security official named Elliot Abrams, who is infamous for his role in supplying weapons to the far-right death squads in Central America and his attempts to overthrow the government of Venezuela. You guys probably heard me mention this, but he's a big CFR guy, and he was also in PNAC, Project for a New American Century. And so under Trump, that's who they appointed to try and overthrow the Venezuelan government and do one of these regime changes. But for some reason, it didn't quite work. So that's who you've got trying to take control of Ukraine or ensure the control of Ukraine for the West, those types of people. And again, you see Ned working hand-in-hand with different George Soros NGOs. So it really makes you wonder if the deep state is in bed with George Soros. It doesn't matter if it's left, right. It doesn't matter if it's socialist, capitalist. It's somewhere all in the middle, and it all revolves around making those people more powerful and making their cronies more money. After Russia's 2014 incursion, the U.S. military also helped run a long-standing publicly acknowledged training program 
for Ukrainian troops in the country's western region, far from the front lines. That program also included instruction in how to use Javelin anti-tank missiles and sniper training. Yahoo News reported in January on the CIA's secret U.S.-based training initiative for Ukrainian Special Operations Forces and other intelligence personnel, which we read. The program, which began in 2015, also included instruction in firearms, camouflage techniques, and covert communications. Yahoo News's prior report also revealed that the CIA paramilitaries had traveled to eastern Ukraine to assist forces loyal to Kiev in their fight against Russia and its separatist allies. Here's another article from 2014. Mint Press News says FBI, neo-Nazi militia trained by U.S. military in Ukraine, now training U.S. white supremacists. The training the U.S. provided to the Azov Battalion is coming back to roost in the U.S. as the neo-Nazi group is training and radicalizing U.S.-based groups with similar ideologies steeped in hatred and a belief in white racial supremacy. It says the indictment says that several American white supremacists were allegedly radicalized by and receiving training from Ukraine's neo-Nazi Azov Battalion, which receives funding from the current government of Ukraine as well as the U.S. government. The group has also received weapons from the Israeli government, as you heard in this episode previously. The indictment filed in Los Angeles, California last month asserts that four American members of the Rise Above Movement, or RAM, and RAM's co-founder Robert Rundo, as well as Robert Bowman, Tyler Laub, and Aaron Eason, had violently attacked and assaulted counter-protesters at several white nationalist and white supremacist events throughout the U.S., including the violent Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville last year. Now, you guys know how I feel about the Unite the Right rally. I think that was fomented by the deep state to get the narrative that they wanted, and I'm sure that they had their guys on the ground there making things even worse. Very similar to January 6th. It's all about the narrative that they can run with, and they know that their news buddies will play that narrative 24-7 for days on end. It says the recent indictment gives special attention to Rundo's more recent activities, particularly his trip to Europe earlier this year, where he traveled to Germany, Ukraine, and Italy to meet with members of European white supremacy extremist groups. The FBI became aware that one of the individuals with whom Rundo had met during this trip was Olina Semenyaka, a leader of the International Department for the National Corps, a Ukraine political party that was formed as an offshoot of the Azov Battalion in 2016. And it shows John McCain here at a rally with Ole Tianibak, the leader of the far-right-wing nationalist party, the Svoboda Party, in Kiev, Ukraine. This is way back in 2013. And we've talked about that a little bit, and I've posted those pictures on my social media before. Newland even mentions Ole Tianibak in her famous phone call with the Ukrainian ambassador and how they should have Yatsenuk talk with him and Klitsch daily. So they knew what this guy Tanibak was about. They knew that he was in this Svoboda party. They were fully aware of all that stuff. Originally, a paramilitary group of right-wing Ukrainian nationalists linked to the country's social nationalist party, the Azov Battalion has since become incorporated into Ukraine's interior ministry as a component of the country's National Guard. 
In addition, the group's founder, Andrei Beletsky, is currently a member of Ukraine's parliament. Despite the merging of the Azov Battalion with the Ukrainian government, the U.S. has long continued to support Ukraine's military with hundreds of millions of dollars in security, programmatic, and technical assistance, largely in the name of combating Russian aggression. And one last part about this. From October 4, 2021, the Ottawa Citizen says, Far-right extremists in Ukraine brag they have received training from the Canadian forces. The study from an institute at George Washington University in Washington, D.C., tracked social media accounts of the far-right group Centuria, documenting its Ukrainian military members giving Nazi salutes, promoting white nationalism, and praising members of the Nazi SS units. The group has been active since 2018 at the Hetman Petro Sahedachny National Army Academy, or the NAA, according to reports from George Washington's Institute for European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies. The NAA is Ukraine's premier military education institution and a major hub for Western military assistance to the country, including from Canada. Centuria members acknowledged on social media they had received training from the Canadian military and have participated in military exercises with Canada. In May, Centuria organizers boasted to their followers that its members currently served as officers in Ukraine's military and have succeeded in establishing cooperation with foreign colleagues from such countries as France, the United Kingdom, Canada, the USA, Germany, and Poland, according to the Institute's report. The Ukrainian military's failure to check Centuria's activities suggests a level of tolerance on its part for the apparent proliferation of far-right ideologies and influence with the armed forces of Ukraine, the study warned. So I just wanted to include these articles because that's further information how the media has changed their tune all of a sudden. They actually were doing some investigative work on this and were concerned about it up until the point of this whole Russian-Ukraine thing. And now they're just following, for the most part, the official narrative. And of course, we hate war, we think war is hell, and we discourage it, and we don't like it whatsoever. And we wish that the Russians hadn't decided to go in there. But again, there's so much more history and so much more information to this whole thing that the media hasn't told anyone that it's just flabbergasting that they could get away with that. And, you know, the majority of the public are none the wiser whatsoever. They have no historical perspective whatsoever. Now, I'm not going to go into it because it's far too long, but I suggest that you look into an article I'm going to include in the show notes, 349 articles from the past five years on the U.S.'s government actions in Ukraine. And that is a Gov website. But let's look quickly here and see. I might have missed a few years, but let's look here. But this is money going to Ukraine from the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act. I included 2014, 2015, 2016, 17, and 18. Oh, and 2020 as well. We have here in 2014, three million dollars. NDAA, 15, 3 million again. 16, 3 million again. 17, 350 million. 2018, 350 million. 
$2,023 million. And that's just from the NDAA. So we've got to understand that millions of our dollars have went to Ukraine. And where does it all go? And it makes me wonder, as I was looking into this, I began to remember listening to the No Agenda show and how they were exposing back in the day how so much money for Ebola aid had went missing. We're talking millions of dollars. The same thing, of course, with Hurricane Katrina and so many of these other things, like the Haiti Relief Fund that the Clintons and the Bushes were in charge of, and even the Red Cross. And it led me to realizing that there is so much funding that cannot be accounted for, not just nationally, not just worldwide, but even locally, and these state funds that happen during natural disasters like hurricanes or tornadoes, flooding, different things like that. And it's it's terrible that we have to even think about those kinds of things and have to look into those type of things, but we should because there's always going to be crooks out there with their hands out wanting as much of our money as they can get. And when we have people in charge of our government like we do that are so corrupt and so crooked, they will happily give it to them and best believe they're getting something in return in the long run, whether it's directly, whether it's for their family members, friends, they're getting something, the promise of a future job, whatever it might be. So that's the kind of system we have, unfortunately. And I think we need to be thinking about all the money that has poured into Ukraine since the 90s and is still being poured into Ukraine as we speak, and not to mention all the armaments and different types of weaponry that's being sent over there right now. And again, you don't have to take the Russian side to think about this. I think we need to understand that there's a lot more at play than just some kind of raving lunatic in charge of Russia going against Ukraine just because he wants it for himself, you know. And I've told you guys I don't trust Putin. I don't care what you call me. You can call me a conspiracy theorist or whatever. I don't trust him because he was, up until just recently, a part of the whole globalist system. So if Putin were on the left and had been with the World Economic Forum, a part of Agenda 21, 2030, and all these different things, then all of a sudden a few months ago, supposedly was separated from those groups. Would we believe it? Would we fully trust this Democrat to say that he's done with all these globalist groups, even though before he was a part of them? So I don't think so, because we look back through history, even as recent as, well, Romney was a Democrat and then became a Republican, so to speak. You know, like politicians lie, the media lies, and when there's billions of dollars on the line and sphere of influence and things that we can't even really fathom because we are not privy to all the information, I think we need to at least ask some of these questions and be a bit skeptical. Because one thing I think about is, and again, I may have mentioned this before, but what will come out of this whole Russia and Ukraine thing? Will it really mess up the supply line like they're saying? Will it push America and other countries into a recession, a depression? What will be the long-term effects? And also, because of this, will this push the world closer to the World Economic Forum's plans? to the UN Agenda 2030's plans, UN Agenda 21's plans, 
So I think we have to think about the outcome because we know that a lot of times it's really not about winning the wars. It's about what can be created during the wars or what will come out of the wars policy-wise, not just nationally but globally. So I think those are fair questions that we should be asking. I don't think that's conspiracy-minded to ask those questions and just kind of uh, put that out there because we may find more information down the road that either refutes that or solidifies that or helps us to think that possibly that's the case. But I say keep your minds open and, of course, don't trust the global elite. There's no low that they won't stoop to. There's no trick that they won't pull out of their sleeve to get what they want. So as hard as it is to trust our leaders, I think we have to also not trust these foreign leaders, even though we can sympathize with them and understand that the West may be against them and are planning to try to bring them down. So I think we need to kind of keep in mind what individual freedom is all about, how we can keep as much of it as possible in these days and times. And we just need to pray for discernment and really study, look deeper at things, never just accept the headline. And uh, I don't know, that's all I can offer. I'm just a curious guy who wants to get to the bottom of the truth and do what's best for everyone. So that's all I got to say on that note. Now I want to follow up and kind of end this episode with an excerpt from Wall Street's Think Tank. It's all about the CFR, and that is by Lawrence Shoup. And he's got a nice section in there called Ukraine, Neoliberalism, Geopolitics, and Conflict. And the thing about Shoup, he looks at the CFR through a liberal lens. And he actually wrote, I believe it was in the 70s, a book on the CFR, or co-wrote a book, called Imperial Brain Trust. Now, a lot of the books and perspective that I've read from concerning the Council on Foreign Relations has been from a more right-leaning perspective, so I think it's good to get these left-leaning perspectives. Now, he says, since the fall of the USSR in the early 1990s, there has been a drive on the part of the U.S. and European capitalist class that's what he basically calls the globalist class, led by the CFR people and CFR-connected organizations to economically and strategically penetrate the former states that were part of the Soviet bloc. The goal is full integration of these nations into the U.S.-dominated neoliberal geopolitical empire. The most important of these countries is Ukraine, Due to its size, resources, including shale gas resources, it lies in a key level of development and geographic position in the heart of Eastern Europe. It lies in a key position for east-west gas transportation, for example. CFR leader Zbigniew Brzezinski, in his 1997 work, The Grand Chessboard, wrote that Ukraine is one of Eurasia's vital geopolitical pivots, suggesting that both the EU and NATO should expand to include Ukraine within a reasonable time frame. He added the warning that if Moscow regains control over Ukraine with its 52 million people and major resources as well as access to the Black Sea, Russia automatically again regains the wherewithal to become a powerful imperial state spanning Europe and Asia. Brzezinski has been centrally involved in promoting recognition of the importance of Ukraine among the higher circles of the U.S. power structure, 
1994, he and the CFR Connected Center for Strategic and International Studies established an American-Ukrainian advisory committee of 19 members. Besides Brzezinski, the U.S. group included five other CFR members, among them Henry A. Kissinger, Frank Carlucci, who I believe runs the Carlisle Group, and George Soros. Brzezinski has been centrally involved in promoting recognition of Europe and Asia. Brzezinski has been centrally involved in promoting recognition of importance of Ukraine among the higher circles of the U.S. power structure. In 1994, he and the CFR-connected Center for Strategic and International Studies established an American-Ukrainian advisory committee of 19 members, 10 from the United States. Besides Brzezinski, the U.S. group included five other CFR members, among them Henry Kissinger, Frank Carlucci, who I believe runs the Carlisle Group, and George Soros, along with CEOs or chairs of major multinational corporations with actual or potential interests in Eastern Europe, such as Archer Daniels Midland, Morrison Knudsen, Westinghouse Electric, the Carlisle Group, and Forbes Magazine. They suggested policies to the U.S. government, including U.S. training for Ukrainian military officers, as well as promoting free enterprise and privatization programs in Ukraine. Their goals included an eventual redefinition of Russia through changes in Ukraine. To promote their plans, they also met during the Clinton administration with Deputy Secretary of State and former CFR Director Strobe Talbot. I believe he was Clinton's roommate in college, if I remember correctly. Since the 1990s, a prime means to further the aim of bringing Ukraine into Western orbit has been the funding of civil society groups in the nation by the National Endowment for Democracy, or NED. As pointed out in Chapter 3, NED and CFR are heavily interlocked, with 10 CFR members serving on the NED Board of Directors, including two current council senior fellows. Again, we have talked about NED all through this series, Whose War Is It Anyway?, because we learned that they are directly connected to intelligence, funded by the intelligence created under Ronald Reagan when the Iran-Contra controversy was going on, and they basically just needed another outlet to be able to carry out their deeds overseas without it having that three-letter name on it. So that's what NED is. It is still three letters, but it's kind of undercover unless you really look into geopolitics. Ned has put a high priority on funding Ukrainian groups, and Ned's president, Carl Gershman, even called the country the biggest prize. As a result, Ned has spent a vast amount of money funding private groups in Ukraine. In 2013 alone, Ned spent millions on 65 different projects in the country. I think we've mentioned that. This was part of a larger U.S. government effort that resulted in $5 billion being spent in Ukraine since 91. Large amounts have also come from private sources. For example, George Soros reportedly donated over $100 million to Ukrainian non-governmental organizations. The NGOs favored with this largesse were those that could promote neoliberalism in the country and orient it to the West. Geopolitical aspect has been the imperialist expansion of NATO to include nations on the borders of Russia. The CFR began to debate and develop ruling class consensus on the topic 
early, announcing in its 1995 annual report that we have plunged into the issue of whether NATO should expand eastward. The chair of this study group was former Secretary of Defense Harold Brown and included people like former and future CFR directors Richard C. Holbrook, Joseph S. Nye Jr., and Anne Marie Slaughter. The January 1995 report of this group concluded NATO should move swiftly and with determination to put itself in a position to admit new members, and prospective entrants should take steps now to prepare themselves for full membership. The Council conducted a follow-up study in 96 with Senator Richard Luger as Chair and State Department official Victoria Newland as Project Director. Newland's husband, Robert W. Kagan, is a longtime CFR member who later became a Senior Fellow for International Economics at the Council. The resulting report was titled, Russia, Its Neighbors and Enlarging NATO. Finally, another study group was formed in 2000 with Zbigniew Brzezinski as Chair and Senior Fellow Ronald D. Asmus as Project Director. Asmus, who had been a key advisor to Secretary of State Madeleine K. Albright produced a CFR book called Opening NATO's Door, which came out in 2004. This book was called The Definitive Account of NATO's Expansion, which had at its main aim binding America and Eastern Europe closer together. It's kind of weird because the footnote number for that paragraph is 666. As the process of enlargement took place during the 1999 to 2009 period, Moscow complained bitterly, arguing that this process was threatening core Russian national interests. This was especially true in the case of Ukraine. Yet the CFR and NATO alliance pushed forward. At its summit in April of 2008, the NATO alliance considered admitting Ukraine, but due to the opposition of France and Germany, They postponed the decision, asserting in a statement that eventually both Georgia and Ukraine will become members of NATO. In 2013 to 2014, the conflict between the West and Russia over Ukraine's future became more serious, with each side pushing harder to bring Ukraine into its own sphere. The neoliberal economic stakes were outlined clearly by the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine in a speech of September 3, 2013, when he stated in clear geoeconomic language that Ukraine has the opportunity to become the eastern frontier of a large European economic space at the same time that it serves as Europe's gateway to the Eurasian heartland and Europe's gateway to one of the most dynamic economic regions of the world, which stretches all the way to Shanghai and to Vladivostok. Both sides offered economic association deals designed to tie Ukraine to one of the two competing blocs. When President Viktor Yanukovych chose the Russian counteroffer to the negotiated agreement with the EU in November 2013, anti-government demonstrations led to a coup in February of 2014. We went over that several times, and I won't bore you with that, but let's just go on and finish this out. I think it's a pretty good information here. It is clear that Washington backed the coup and State Department official and CFR-connected Victoria Newland and CFR member Senator John S. McCain both traveled to Kiev 
and participated in anti-governmental demonstrations. The new government in Kiev included Arsenai Yatsenuk as its prime minister, a man evidently chosen by Newland. Yatsenuk, who had been a speaker at the CFR and at least one trilateral committee meeting, had extensive ties to Western corporations and institutions that are now penetrating Ukraine through his Open Ukraine Foundation, whose partners include NATO, the National Endowment for Democracy, the U.S. State Department, the German Marshall Fund, and the Chatham House. One of the corporations that partners with Yatsenuk and his foundation is the Horizon Capital, which promotes foreign investment in Ukraine. CFR member Jeffrey C. Neal is a founding partner of Horizon. The new government in Kiev was not only pro-Western and anti-Russian, it also included at least four neo-fascists in high-ranking positions. Responses to this right-wing coup included an armed rebellion by local people in Crimea and eastern Ukraine, clearly encouraged and supported by Russia, including the use of Russian special forces. This resulted in a civil war between Kiev and its eastern provinces, with dangerous implications for the future of peace in Europe due to the involvement of great powers on each side. Gradually, escalating Western-imposed sanctions on Russia was another result, also undermining the globalized European economy. The stakes in this conflict are especially high for Russia, since its people have suffered greatly in the past when several aggressors were able to invade their territory through Ukraine. Sergei Karaganov, a Russian who was a member of the Council's International Advisory Board from 1995 to 2005, highlighted the importance of this issue for Russia in an opinion piece in the Financial Times. It is noteworthy that a Russian leader close to the CFR in the past, and who describes himself as an Europhile, could strongly warn the West's strategy of sanctions, war of disinformation, and the reinvigoration of NATO as a military force is a strategy that rests on misunderstanding and miscalculation. The misunderstanding is that it is at the root and a standoff over Ukraine. To Russians, it is something far more important, a struggle to stop others from expanding their sphere of control into territories they believe are vital to Russia's survival. Westerners need to understand how their government made a potential foe out of what was once an inspiring ally. Russia will not yield. This has become a matter of our nation's life and death. A lasting peace in Europe is a noble aim. It can be achieved only through mutual respect and an accommodation of legitimate interests. Okay, guys, we're going to finish this up, but I just wanted to go out with some really clear information from a different point of view, like I said, this guy is on the left of politics. This book was completed in 2015. So the end results of these developments are unknown. Well, we know what they were. We know what they are. But it is already clear that the CFR-led attempt to impose neoliberalism and Western geopolitical interests regarding Ukraine has helped create a serious and dangerous conflict between the West and Russia in the heart of Europe. Since both the Western allies and Russia possess nuclear weapons, some have compared the situation to the nuclear standoff during the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis. This conflict has also led to Russia strengthening its ties to China, 
which may have a long-range implication for the geopolitics of the 21st century. Now, Shoup and his books and his articles usually talk about the Council on Foreign Relations, and he has the most meticulous information in his two books on the Council and their connections. And I think it's very important to look at their connections, the sister organizations, the other NGOs and think tanks and foundations, but also the organizations and the businesses and the government positions that their members belong to or have belonged to. So it's a huge, huge network. It's a spider with a thousand legs. It's global. It's meant to be global, and it is very, very powerful. They can cause wars. They can break apart countries. They can destroy civilizations. Even they can completely split the people in countries and turn them against one another. They have the power of the deep state. They have the power of the media. They have the power of a lot of people in the higher level positions of the military and the Pentagon and the military industrial complex. They have people in high positions of power in education. They have people everywhere in every industry, banking and the highest levels of various businesses, corporations, industries, etc. So I think that it's something to really think about, and I think that it's the power at play here. Like I've said in the past, I believe the global elite network wanted to have full control. They didn't want Russia to have any control in Russia because of their placement, because of their size, because of their history, because of their resources felt and feel that they should have a lot more power in this structure, this global new world order structure, whatever you want to call it, world order, liberal world order, the Great Reset. And since they could not agree on that, and since the West, the Western powers, the NATO powers, continued to surround Russia and push Russia even farther and farther, then now you see What's become of that, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and all the craziness that's coming along with it, and we don't even know what all the long-term consequences will be. So I want to thank you guys for having the patience with me to bear with me during this series. We'll be doing another series soon on the NGOs and the different organizations that are connected to this. Like we'll do one specifically on the National Endowment for Democracy. We're going to do one on Soros and his many different NGOs. And we'll talk about just the other NGOs and think tanks and organizations that are involved in regime changes and how they're connected to the deep state. So thank you guys once again for hanging out with me and listening to this show. Thank you for your continued support. Please continue to share the show. Tell others about it. Give me a good rating on whatever platform you listen to this on if you have the time. It's really appreciated. If you're interested in becoming a member of the Society of Cryptic Savants or one of the other tiers, then please check out patreon.com forward slash the odd man out. Time is money, and I put a lot of time into the show, and I hope that I can continue to do it. Now, Thank you to my patrons, Abdullah, James, Bill, Peterson, Kevin, Chris, Rooster, Flat Dark, and Earthy. 
John Brisson from We've Read the Documents, Greg, Kilowatt, Sir Tim of the Tunnels, Aaron, David, Jack Allen from Conspiracy or Just a Coincidence, and James. Thank you all for your support. Thank you to Alternate Current Radio for their continued support. Please check out their brand new awesome website. I can't tell you how awesome this thing is. It's just the most brilliant looking, interesting looking website. AlternateCurrentRadio.com and you can find my show on there as well as a ton of others. They've got The Boiler Room and many other talk shows as well as music shows. So check them out. Give them some love. Also check out their Patreon and just thank them for being such a supporter of the Oddcast. Also thank you to Fringe Radio Network for posting the shows and I hope you are doing great. Cheers and blessings and remember, their order is not our order. See you next time, guys.
Yeah, Brad. 